Well, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if you would. That's where we will be. You're going to put your finger there. And we're going to start in 1 Kings 18. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 1, but I'm going to introduce tonight with 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you know your Bible, you know what is coming. It is the story of Elijah. 1 Kings 18. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of 1 Kings 18 in your Bibles. It says, Now it happened, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now that's the, the scene setter. Now drop down to verse 17, and we'll pick up the story there. It says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all of Israel, Mount Carmel, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. And if Baal, then follow Him. But the people did not answer a word. Now, as I said, you probably recognize this passage as the story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The beginning of the story actually starts all the way back in chapter 17 with this abrupt entrance of Elijah, the, the, the Tishbite. And there's a lot of things going on in this, in this narrative. And what we just read is, the, is the, the prelude to the confrontation between an Old Testament prophet and an apostate ruler of Israel. Ahab was a, was a wicked king, and the Bible gives a scathing rebuke of his, of his reign. How would you like to have this on your, your tombstone? Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than, than all the other kings of Israel before him. And Ahab did three things to earn that condemnation from, from the Lord. First of all, he belittled the testimony of God. In chapter 16, verse 31, it says, He lived as though walking contrary to God was a trivial thing. They had made light of sin. He was a, he was a mocker. He was a, a scoffer of the, of the ways of the Lord. Second, he made a, a political covenant with a, with a secular king, and he marries a, a pagan queen. Like attracts like, as they say, and that was a direct violation of, of God's command. I mean, Israel was to be separate from those around them, and, and it, was a, it was cultural then to establish alliances between uh, between countries or groups of people through these dynastic marriages and, 
And this was to bring the two kingdoms together and ensure peace. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't attack your father-in-law or you wouldn't attack the kingdom of your daughter. And they thought that, that those union would, unions would secure that. But, but God never mingles His people to attract others or ensure some type of cooperation. He changes other people by the holy presence of His people. Um, it's a very important principle to remember even in, even in our day. I mean, God is not looking for common ground with those who deny Him. He's calling sinners to holy ground. And when they come there, they'll remove their sandals and acknowledge Him. And They don't stay the same whenever they, they come to Christ. You come to Christ and you're forever, forever changed. So there was this political alliance, this, this unlawful marriage. And then third, most important, God condemned Ahab because of spiritual compromise. He, he brings uh, Baal worship into, into Israel. Uh, chapter 16, verse 32 says, Then he set up an altar to Baal. And what was even worse than setting up an altar to Baal is he didn't tear down the altar of, uh, of Yahweh. He, he combined those, those two together. He he took the God of heaven and he set him alongside the gods of this world. And when he did, Israel followed his compromise. As goes a pulpit, so goes a church. As goes a leader, typically so goes the people. And if you want to look at this morning, as go fathers or parents, typically so go, so go children. And so God confronts not only Ahab, but God confronts his people. Um, verse 19 Elijah came near to, to all, the, all the people and he asked the people this question. Confronts Ahab. Ahab confronts him right back, you troubler of Israel, and they set up this, this, this contest, if you will. And when the contest comes together, Elijah asked the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? I mean, it's like saying, how long will you ride the fence? Or to say it another way, how long will you pretend that I'm not God? Because I will not be set alongside others. I will be magnified over all. And then he goes on to say, if the Lord is God, then follow Him. And if He's not, then don't. What a, what a pertinent question even, even in our day. I think that, that, that statement echoes through, through all of Scripture and in the Bible. It's pretty simple to grasp what he's saying, isn't it? I mean, if God is God, then, then you should treat him like that he is. And if he's not, it doesn't matter. He declares there's no in-between. God will not allow any fence riding with his people. He's the unchallenged Lord of the universe, and he'll not be rivaled by anyone or anything. There is no, there's no neutral ground there. there. And did you notice, though, as we walk through that, or as you remember the, the story of, uh, of Elijah and the prophets of, of Baal, that, that all the way through the story of Elijah, God uses His Word and creation to prove who He is, which is why this introduction is important for our lesson tonight. I mean, the entire narrative builds up around this event of God stopping the rain and, and Baal uh, claiming to be able to, to control it. I mean, from the end of chapter 16, there are two things that are repeated over and over and over. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. And, 
And then the word of the Lord typically had something to do with creation, which proved God's rightful place over it. Uh, Every part of the story of Elijah, God proclaims he is God and he'll perform all that he speaks. In 17.2, the word of the Lord came. In 17.4, he shows his power over creation by the birds obeying God's command to take food to his prophet. Control over nature, control over creation. Verse 7, the Lord shows his exercise over, over creation again by causing the brook to dry up. Verse 8 begins with the the statement, And the word of the Lord came. And the miracle of flour and oil in verse 15 concerns the necessities of of life and how God can provide for His own. And the the reason for the miracle is also due to a drought that that God brought where He shut off the rain. And When He brings the widow's son uh, to life, He declares He not only has power over nature, but ultimate power over life and death. Again, His creation. In fact, the entire section beginning in chapter 17, verse 1, through chapter 18, 45, is about God reigning over His creation, was shutting off and bringing forth the rain. Rain is life and death in an arid climate. And again, something that Baal, Baal claimed to, to rule. And so on the backdrop of all of those events, God confronts Israel and He says, How long will you halt between two positions? He's saying, I am a proven that I'm the powerful creator and that all of creation obeys me. So if that's true, don't you think you should obey me as well? (laughs) I mean, the sin that God confronts in Ahab is spiritual counterfeiting. And the sin that he confronts in Israel is spiritual compromise. And that question is fitting for us as we're looking at creation. Creation and what the word of the Lord says. We've been looking at two views about the origins of life, the counterfeit conclusion, or what is called the theory of evolution, and then the Creator's view, which is in Genesis 1, what what God's Word declares and what took place. And the question is, which will you choose to follow, God's Word or man's counterfeits? That's what I hope you got out of both of those, and the fact that you can't ride the fence. Tonight, we're going to look at the, the masterpiece of God's creation, His, His, uh, His opus, His crown, which is the creation of, uh, of man, the piece du resistance of creation. So now turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, because here is the, the pinnacle. This is part three of our summer series called Applied Anthropology. And specifically how that relates to creation and culture, and as I said Many times we're going to look at this in two parts. We're going to look at the foundation, which is what we're doing right now, the foundation of creation laid in Genesis, see what the Bible teaches about the world and mankind. And then in the second half of our summer series, we're going to apply that to cultural issues. That's the applied part. I mean, biblical anthropology informs a lot. Biblical distinctions are rooted in creation. Biblical roles are rooted in God's design, like we heard this morning. Biblical purposes for life are rooted in His commands, which we'll hear tonight. Biblical sexuality is rooted in God's blessing of of creation, making them male and female. And and last week we walked day by day through the creation narrative, and it's just a straightforward declaration that was very easy to understand. I mean, God declares, this is what I did, and this is how I did it. 
ex nihilo, out of nothing, by fiat, which is by command. In fact, the first verse, the ten succinct words that where God creates everything that can be known materially or observed. In the beginning time, God force created action, the heaven space, and the earth matter. The six days that follow, day one, the creation of matter, space, light, water, time. Day two, breathable and dividable, uh, divided atmosphere. Day three, the gathering of waters and land and vegetation. Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars to fill the heavens. Day five, creatures to fill the sky and the water. And day six, creatures to fill the land. I mean, the pattern is God creates, He orders, and then He fills for use. But as amazing as all of that is, and it is breathtaking when you actually pay attention to it, it pales in comparison to what God created last, which is found in verse 26 through the end of the, of the chapter. There are three divine distinctives of mankind described in the, the, the Genesis account. And we're going to look at those tonight. Man is God's definite representative in verse six, uh, 26. Man displays God's image in both sexes in verse 27. And then man directs God's creation in verse 28. And I guess you could stretch that through verse 31 because God then blesses and declares that what he made was very good. Three divine distinctives of of mankind that make us different from the rest of creation. And the first is... God is, man is God's uh, definite representative on the earth. There's a, a declaration and a description given here in verse 26. Look, if you would, at verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, uh, the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And everything up to this point has been the setting for this creative work. It's, all of that is declaration uh, for, for, this, for this moment. God, the Trinity, now says He will personally create an Adam, a human being as we, as we call it. Not Adam as, a, as an individual male or man, but mankind. That's the Hebrew word. and They'll be created in God's image and likeness. And I want you to notice verse 26 is a declaration. It's a There's no creation here. There's just a statement of intent. And that's significant because every time God said anything else prior to this, it just happened. God said, and and it was. But here he he slows down and he makes a declaration of his intent. This is some kind of dialogue that's happening within the Trinity. Some kind of dialogue God's having with himself. It's a or it's a plural statement alluding to his power and his position to be able to, to, be able to do that. And, but the act doesn't happen here. I mean, God just declares his intent and then he describes what he intends to create. Verse 26. There's a lot of discussion about the phrase, let us make. Um, I won't bore you with all of that. Uh, you, you'll have to know that if you're going to teach this passage. Many, though, will will, will say that Moses does not imply the Trinity here because that doctrine is not fully developed yet. I mean, this is the first chapter of the Bible, for goodness sake. It's not the New Testament. That's their argument. But he's already mentioned the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, who's moving over the water back in verse 1. 
And so while I agree Moses didn't have a, a fully formed Trinitarian doctrine, uh, he, he surely understood more than, than a lot of the eggheads give him credit for. He surely lays the groundwork here for the, for the Trinity in this verse. It doesn't deny it, that's for sure. Surely not talking about the, the sons of God or some pantheon of false gods that, that had infiltrated Moses' thinking from the Near East. I want you to notice there's, there's also a shift in the creative language of, of God's statement here. I mean, up to this point, there, there's been the repeated statement, let there be, and, and here it says, let us make. And, and that's, that's a dramatic shift. I mean, up to this point, God created by verbal command. He spoke and it was so. But here's the first time that, that God makes a statement and he says, let us make, indicating something different about this part of creation. And where the phrase, let there be, um, shouts God's limitless power, this phrase communicates God's intimate involvement. And you'll see that intimate involvement if you go to chapter 2. And he slows down and he communicates this part, uh, as he communicates this part of creation, it will have his special and specific care. There are over 140 words used to describe uh, day six of creation, which is over double what is used for any other day. Closest would be day three and four, both significant days, and they have about 70 words each. So this is about double anything else, the highest number of, of, of words any, uh, of any other day. And if that wasn't ev- evidence enough, you've got all of chapter two, which is like the repeat, the zoom in on on what happened, zooming in on this creative event. and He'll form man from there from the raw materials of the earth. He'll form a body and then he'll, he'll breathe life into him and create a, a living soul. I mean, it's, it's, this, it's this deliberative process that God goes through. He didn't have to do that. He could have spoke just like he did anything else, but he doesn't do that. And after this declaration of intent, then God describes what he plans to make. There's a declaration and a description. Here's a declaration. Let us make man. And here's what he just plans to make. Make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and sky. And it goes on. And the statement, let us make, is then followed up with the pattern in which mankind will be made. Let us make. Let us make them this way, in this specific pattern. God will be created in the image and likeness of their creator. I mean, the name man actually means Adam in Hebrew, which, which is a word that means dirt. Joel James said, if you ever start getting lifted up in pride, just remember your name is dirt. <laughs> he said it's, it's also obvious from this passage that, that we're not just overhauled chimpanzees. I mean, God didn't find the best ape in creation and give him one of those Captain American, uh, Captain America vials that turns him into some, some man. We're created specifically, uniquely, personally in the image of God. Owen Strachan said, Mankind is not God. He is a mere creature, but a, but a creature with, limitless, uh, with a limitless charter. This small, non-flying, ungilled being has great responsibility and explosive potential. He is made by God to display God to the world that God has formed. To one another, to birds, to the heavens themselves, the human race is a testament to the reality of divinity. 
to look at men, mankind, is to confront, however distantly, the Almighty. The words image and likeness are are parallel expressions. They mean the same thing. uh, They describe one another for emphasis. The word image comes from a word that is its root of of carving. Mankind is carved into into God's shape, not physically, but in form and function. The phrase is found four times in the the Old Testament, twice here, once in chapter 9 and another in chapter 5. But what does it mean? I mean, is there something substantive? Uh, is there some substantive difference that, that human beings possess that makes them different, that makes us different from the, the rest of, of creation? I mean, we're not like animals. We have moral responsibility. We have intelligence. We have emotion. We have a knowledge of God. I mean, is that what it means, that, that to be made in the image of God means that we have creative attributes that are godlike? That was the conclusion of, of Calvin and Thomas Aquinas. I mean, Calvin said the mind is made for God. That, that what, that's what makes us unique. We can think and we can rationalize. That's distinct from the animals. And Thomas Aquinas in, uh, in, in Summa Theologica said, uh, rationality, the ability to think and reason unto true knowledge marks the human person as distinct from all others. Man can create, man can speak language like, like God. We have a conscience and all of those things they said comes from this quality, this attribute of, of image bearing. Now it's different from all the other created things. Joel James said the image of God in man is the totality of man's higher powers that separate him from the, from the rest of creation. You look at your dog and you were, you were made different and you can tell it, so act like it. That's, that's one view. There's some substantive difference about that's part of our creation. Others would say that's true, but is that the defining characteristic of what it means to be an image bearer? What, it's, what separates us from the rest of creation? Is that the defining characteristic? Karl Barth and others, for example, would say no. It's not the defining characteristic. He would say uh, the most important aspect about mankind is, is our creator made us to have a relationship with him. We, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. So we are able to commune with God in a way that, that animals can't and the rest of the creation can't. It, this view takes its cue from the divine relationship within the Trinity. The Godhead is in relationship with with one another, and so humanity is made for relationship as well. Man has spiritual attributes that give him this unique ability to relate to to each other and to God. I mean, he alone, man alone, bears the ability to relate to God in a special way. So Bart said, man is a a repetition of this divine form of light. It's a copy, a reflection. It's true, man is a relational being. We don't like to be alone. We find things to worship. Go out in the middle of the jungle and they've never heard of God and they're worshiping stuff, they're worshiping something. A person who doesn't have a church, that doesn't even know Christ, will join the ball field or the moose lodge or some other place where everybody knows his name, as the old Cheers sitcom from the 80s used to say. 
Owen Strachan again, Strachan again said, um, God is fundamentally in relationship as a trinity of persons. So human persons made, in the, made by the Trinitarian God are by definition relational beings. There's one other view that I think is closest to what Moses implies here. It's called the representative view. The idea that image bearing means that we represent God because that's the way that this phrase was typically used in Moses' day, was to describe a a representative of a king in the ancient Near East. Uh, The image bearer was not the king, but, but he was one who ruled by the king's authority and in the king's place. Um, you have to remember the, the, who's writing and what's the purpose of the writing. Moses is writing here not to give us all of the implications of anthropology and to, to flesh out everything that we need to know about human beings. His purpose was to explain to the Jewish people who is God and who are you as human beings. That's why he wrote it. When he gets to Deuteronomy, his, his purpose then is to explain to uh, what, what it means to be in covenant with this God as God's people through the law. And he says to be human means that you're God's representatives on the earth. You're, you're his vice regents, God's, rule over, God's ruler over his creation. Anthony uh, Hokima said, Man was created in God's image so that he or she might represent God like an ambassador from a foreign country. So which is it? Does the image of God mean some some property like the mind? Uh, Is it relational? Or are we like an adjunct ruler? And I would say when you you look at Scripture as a whole, it's it's probably best to put all those together. I mean, the mind and the will and the motion, uh, conscience are are all unique to, to mankind. We... We clearly relate to one another in God. That, that's massive. And we're uniquely His representatives. No one else is given the commands that are given here. And you can find inference to all of these unique aspects in the rest of Scripture, but in the end, it's obvious from this passage, the Lord is not interested in defining the detail here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He just states it without much more. Verse 26 just simply says that, that to be human is to bear God's image. This is how we relate to our Creator. We are in His image and we relate differently to the rest of creation because we, we've been created this way. It's, a, it's an ontological reality. It's, it's part of what you are, being a human. Strachan said, a salamander is not, a rock is not, a dog, though communicating real, infection, uh, real affection is not. Only human beings are made into the image of God and only Jesus Christ is the true image. And nothing that, that we do can change that reality. Not even the fall change that reality. We, we still are image bearers. Mankind, though, is God's masterpiece. And you can even see that with with evolutionists and atheists. Do evolutionists and atheists live consistently with their worldview? No, they do not. One writer said they, they love their, their children, they work hard, they sacrifice for uh, their, their own interests for no discernible gain. Freighted with sadness, they care for their fathers and their mothers as their, their lives ebb, doing so without any real benefit to themselves. 
they live as if there's a purpose, a purpose that's been given to them by, by someone or something higher. And the reason for such behavior is that mankind is made by God. We're not dust in the wind. We're not products of chance. We're image bearers. God made us. And this special attribute, this special creation means specific responsibilities. That purpose is spelled out related to the rest of creation next. Look at verse 26 again. Here's the intent. Let us make. What's he making? Man in in this pattern of our image and our likeness. And then here's how they'll relate to the rest of creation. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so Moses spells out our relationship to everything else that God made. Our relationship to God and everything else that God has made. We're to exercise dominion over all living creatures. The, The word rule over... In the rest of the Old Testament, primarily dealt with a, with a relationship like that of a, of a master to a servant or a, a king over his subjects, a shepherd over flocks, a ruler over his nation. And so here we, we learn mankind has created a rule, and his rule is to be a godlike rule. It, we bear God's image, so we, we rule as, as if he would. We, we rule with God's attributes, uh, what's pleasing to the Lord. We, we rule compassionately, we're not exploitive. The, the, the ruling is directly connected to the way in which we do it because we're, we're there as God's representative. And you can apply that even to our, our, our lesson this morning. It's because you have been given the responsibility to lead. You lead in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. You don't just lead. Victor Hamilton said, Even in the Garden of Eden, he who would be Lord of all must be servant of all. So there's, there's form, and then there's function in creation. The form is a special creation being made in the image and likeness of God. The function, then, is to, is to do something in that form. A function flows out of the, of the form. We, we're to have dominion as God's vice regents. We bear His image in, in form. The form is stated in our text, and the function is then spelled out not only here, but, but in the verses that, that follow. We're told to subdue the earth. And the rest of the Bible is written to explain all the specifics of how we're to do that. The Bible doesn't just tell us what to do. The Bible tells us what to think, what's real, what's true. It explains how we're, we're different from the rest of life on the earth. And it also gives us specific instructions of how to represent the Lord. It's, that's God's intent for, for humankind. And then... And then God carries out this, this intent. The second distinctive of man is he displays God's image in both sexes. Look, if you would, at verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. You hear any repetition there? You should. So the Imago Dei is in verse 26. In verse 27, then he applies it. The, the word bara, uh, to, to create, is used three times in verse 27. The repetition is to communicate this is clearly a creative act of God. This is not evolution. He, he created, he created, he created three times. And notice it says he created them. 
And then he defines what he means by them. He, he created two distinct sexes that both represent him. And just so there's no confusion, the Hebrew for male and female is used, thereby expressing their particular sexuality. And this passage tells us who is created in, in the image of God, which is both males and, and females. But it still doesn't describe the contents of that of that image. Uh, men and women are not created with part of God's image. They don't complete each other like a puzzle. Men are not created with more of God's image than, than women. They both possess it. And that is fundamental to understand uh, the value of human life, the value of the sexes, the, the importance of the distinctions the equality that, that is there between them. In fact, James will even use this idea of the fact that, that you should not use your tongue to bless and to curse people who are made in the image of God. It's, it's sinning whenever you, you don't value this, this image bearer. To speak against another human being is, is, is as if to speak against God in, in some form or, or, or fashion. And they both possess it. And that's very different from the creation of animals. Animals were obviously created with two sexes. You see that in, in the flood narrative. Moses, uh, Moses uh, Noah, I should say. Moses says, Noah goes out and, and gathers the them men by, by sexes. And you should remember that form and function concept. You, they're made in this form, male and female, to carry out God's function. So men and women are egalitarian in form. They're equal in form. They're both image bearers. They're complementary in function. They arrange themselves as God would design life and marriage and family. So human sexuality is essential for carrying out God's mandate that He gives to, to humanity. It requires two genders to obey these commands. It requires two genders to multiply and fill the earth. Kenneth Matthews said, human procreation is not intended merely as a mechanism for replication or an expression of human passion, but it is instrumental in experiencing covenant blessing in marriage. Two, two genders are required to rule and subdue the earth. It takes both men and women to do that. I mean, the whole concept of form and function will be really important when we get to the applied anthropology part, but because those things have to be synced up. I mean, just because you can do something doesn't mean it's right to do. I mean, you can, you can go out and have babies all over the place, but that doesn't mean it's part of God's plan. So there's form and, and function, and those two things have to be synced up according to God's Word. And and God doesn't leave us guessing what mankind is to do. So here's the, the final distinctive. The third distinctive is man directs God's creation together. This is male and female. Verse 28. Look, if you would, at verse 28. Watch the plural. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That entire command is given to them. 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Males and females are given the command to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and to rule over creation. That's the form. They have that form. And they'll function in a specific design as they carry out this, this command. This is the second time God has blessed in his creation account. But this one's very different because he speaks directly to the ones that, that he makes as opposed to just noting it. And God blessed creation. Here he speaks to, to the ones that, that he made. And notice the command is given to both men and women. The passage focuses on the consequence of this creative act, which is humanity's role on the earth. Mankind is appointed as God's rural representatives to, to rule. Royal representatives to rule in the earth. And God gives them two assignments to the male and the female. Procreation and dominion. God blessed his earlier creation and so he blesses mankind here as well. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was what the call that, that he gave to the animals back in verse 22. That's not new. He gives that same kind of call to, to mankind here. What is new is the command to subdue and to rule over or have dominion. They're just like animals. Man has the, has the power to reproduce. But unlike animals, we reproduce God's image. And we exercise dominion as we do that. We create more and more image bearers. And notice it says that we exercise the dominion over every living thing. God's image bearers, human beings, are to subdue. And that's a commission from God. He's supposed to rule. But interesting, one commentator pointed this out, um, they rule as, as God would. He's not allowed to kill the creatures or use their flesh for food. Look at verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves all over the earth, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Nothing here about killing animals or eating animals. This is before the fall. The word subdue means to, to bring something like a land, like a piece of property, or people into subjection. It's, it's, it's out of order, it's, it's unruled, and you go and you subdue it. You, you bring it into subjection. So it will then serve whoever is ruling. So verse 29 and 30, God specifically says He has given the earth to us for that purpose. We serve God as we make creation serve us. Man and woman are to make the resources of earth useful for themselves and for other people. They're to take what God's created and they're to subdue it. They're to use the resources of creation, all of its abilities, all of its assets, and to develop them, to do that for utility. That's what you see happening in people that, that, that thrive. You, there's a drive in you to build a business, to... Mow your grass, to cut down a forest, to do something. It's, a, it's that idea. You, you, you subdue to develop something 
for utility. That means that they're used for good. It's to be developed to be used for good, the good of other humans and the, and the glory of God. And in any use that defies that purpose, then is illegitimate. It's evil. To, you don't misuse God's creation. And when you misuse it, 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 it reverses the creation's order. The creation typically starts serving or starts ruling over man rather than, rather than serving. I mean, when something that God has made for man to rule over is not used properly, it ends up that creation rules over man or harms like drugs or alcohol or, or anything else that's misused. Or when we use scientific discovery to kill by euthanasia, we use things that are, that are intended for, for good, that the goal is to subdue, to be used for the rest of creation, and we, we use it for illegitimate purposes. Now we have a boundary that's created. We have a command that, 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 that fences in not only what we're supposed to do, but, but under what end. You start applying that to, to science and ethics and medicine and life. So when you apply this passage, it's vital to understand the proper order. I mean, the universe was created to serve the earth. We talked about this last time, the the sun, the moon, and the stars, it's all for, for the earth, to, to, to serve the earth. The earth was then created to serve mankind. It, it, was, it was created to serve this pinnacle of God's creation, and man, we were created to serve God. And the way that man serves God is to rule over this earth. And the way he rules is in a godlike fashion. I Meaning he bears God's image and attributes as he rules. He doesn't abuse the earth or the animals or otherwise. And I know you've got all kinds of questions, and that's the applied part. We're just laying the foundation right now. I mean, this used to be obvious, uh, but it's not anymore with our deification of nature and Mother Earth. And um, We should never do something that the Lord... Uh, w- would not do or would not be pleased with. But that doesn't mean that creation is not for mankind's use. Um, in fact, verse 28 commands us to turn the resources of creation for a greater good, into a greater good. I mean, we're to rule over the earth by, by using the earth for human thriving. So the proverbial spotted owl should not be exalted over forestry workers, for example, who must put bread on their table, but the corporate lumber yard that clear, clear cuts and pillages the, the land is not subduing it either. It's abusing it. So somewhere in there you have to figure out in these individual decisions how you, how you obey the, to carry out the form in the function. As you're functioning on the earth. But it's very clear by this passage the earth was created for you to rule over and to subdue and to turn it into something good. God created man for this purpose. God commands man to this end and he blesses man in these efforts and then God declares it good. Look at verse 29. He gives them every plant yielding tree for food. Verse 30, it was so... In verse 31, God saw that all all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now there was the evening and the morning, the sixth day. How important is understanding 
that you were created in the image of God. We'll get into more of the application later, but let me, let me just give you one right now. I don't think this is an understatement, but, but one writer said, understanding this truth in, in some way ensures the existence of the entire human race. I mean, Genesis 9 tells us that the, the, the reason that murder is prohibited, the reason you can't kill somebody else, is because you were made in the image of God. On the flip side, the, the reason for capital punishment is because you have taken someone's life who was made in the image of God. Genesis 9, whoever sheds man's blood by his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Right back to Genesis. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the, the earth abundantly and multiply in it. It's a command given to, to Noah. I mean, if we're nothing more than evolving material, then there's no morality and you should just do whatever you want to do, including take whatever you want to take. And that's basically what you see a lot of people doing. They're told they're animals, so they act like them. You remove the sanctity of human life, which is based on this distinction that you are different. The human beings are different from the rest of creation because they are specifically and specially made as image bearers. You take that away and there's little restraint for murder other than human convenience. What else would restrain it? which is exactly what you're seeing. I mean, the boundaries are being pushed further and further and further to the limits, all the way to the third trimester and beyond, and it will go beyond that. It will get to the point where there's murder at any point if you remove God's image. And then at whatever point, another person, which is nothing more than an animal or a piece of goo, at what point, whatever point that inconveniences another human being, it will be fine to do. In fact, this deification of, 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 of the individual, it will be perceived as evil not to murder because it attacks the, their preeminence. It, it attacks a, another human being's rights in, in some way. I mean, I had an abortion because the baby was going to keep me from my career. It was going to force me to marry my girlfriend, and I don't want to do that. That's going to mess my life up. And that would hurt my future. So it would be wrong for me not to do that, not to get an abortion. And on and on. But contrary to all of that, if mankind bears God's image, whether they're red, yellow, black, or white, then that life is to be protected and nurtured above everything else, including your own desires, because that life is an image bearer. To look upon that life, to deal with that life, is to, is to confront the Almighty in some way. Mankind is definitely different from the animals and the rest of what God has made, and we have been given different functions and commands. We're created in the image of God, and then we suffered irreparable destruction in the fall were delivered through the Lord Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection where the image is being then progressively transformed as in believers and until the state of perfection uh, at the 
the resurrection and were glorified. God doesn't just forgive that rebellion. He restores us to our purpose in creation and life on the earth. So if you're a Christian, you not only still bear the image of God, but you're now being remade into the image of Christ so that you can do exactly what's commanded here and, and more. And the rest of Scripture shows you how to, to live that out like the one that we, we looked at today. Lots of stuff there. Um, we're going to have a Q&A um, soon. We'll tell you when. Um, we'll, we haven't decided yet. I haven't, I haven't decided yet whether we'll do questions ahead of time, whether we'll do microphones or whatever. I really don't care. Um, I don't want to. I want to be as helpful as possible to you. So I don't, in one sense, want to just have you know dead space and only the people that talk uh, ask questions. I want you to be able to ask whatever you want to ask, and so so we'll probably do a little bit of both. We'll probably get let you submit some questions ahead of time, um, even about this, and then Lord willing, we'll try to do that again uh, when we get into some of the more sticky stuff like um, uh, gender homosexuality and, and those type of things but uh, but that's what's coming so let's pray oh father i am so thankful you have saved me but for your grace i would not be here i would not desire to do this i would not want to know what your word says i wouldn't understand any of this but for your grace and your mercy in fact, for many years, Lord, I lived contrary to your ways. And you have redeemed me, and you've done the same thing for a lot of people here. Lord, as we, we look at how off track the world is, let us not forget we were part of that world and that we have the answer, which is the gospel. May we never be lifted up in pride, but be humble and compassionate but clear um, because you're the one who has spoken and we want to hear that and do that. Thank you for a good evening. Take us home with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.